Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasparri. This is Frank Pelican. It's August twenty third, two thousand and twenty. This is episode eighty one, and tonight we are covering the top five post apocalyptic hidden gems, which is a mouthful for an episode yeah. title. Um, but I nailed it because I usually cannot say apocalypse very well all the time. Like it's always been a word that's like hung me up. So maybe you're better with apocalyptic. Maybe. I practiced a lot in my 20s because I, like, fucked it up so much. Um, <clears throat> okay, so this was one of your genres that you wanted to do. Um, I can't remember at this point, like, what happened, but something happened with an episode that we needed to switch something out, and you wanted to do right. this. So why did you want to go ahead and do this? I mean, I really like this genre a lot. Um the 80s were full of, I don't know if I'd call them hidden gems, but low-budget uh, post-apocalyptic movies like for a time period. So you have the Conan, post-Conan time period, which is like all sword and sorcery shit. And then the post-Road Warrior time period, which is all post-apocalyptic. And then this weird melding of the two, which is like post-apocalyptic barbarian shit. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, as one of my favorite, like, mindless genres. Um, so initially my thought was we were going to talk about five, like, really bad, low-budget um, post-apocalyptic movies. But then I started thinking about movies that might not really have a chance to make it on any other list um, that I enjoy and I'd like to talk about. Um, or that I think would be interesting to talk about, I guess. Um Although I enjoy all five movies on this list, so, you know, like a combination of both of those things. Um, I mean, there's some shit, like, uh, um, I don't know, like 1990 The Bronx Warriors and The Equalizer and um, Equalizer 2000, I'm sorry. Um, just a bunch of stuff. Like, if you go on Prime and look up, uh, if you look up Mad Max and go down to, like, People Also Watch, like, you'll get like all these movies and there's probably two dozen of them free on prime. Um, but they're fun. It's a fun genre. It's pretty easy for directors to do low budget, um, versions of it. Cause all you really need is a couple of like beat up cars that you can put like extra shit on and some like leftover football gear, I guess, or whatever. Um, and then because like most of them do the whole, I don't know. There was one I watched the other day. It was awful. It was a couple weeks ago. But it was, like, really good in its awfulness. It had, um, what's his name in it? Uh, Kung Fu, um, David Carradine was in it. And he was a, like, a wandering samurai warrior. More of, like, a ninja warrior in the post-apocalyptic wasteland. Um, but I don't know. It's, I mean, it's not a good, but it's a fun movie to watch. So, so just so, yeah, so, so I started thinking about that, and then like some of these other movies started to come to mind, and I was like, well, we could just do movies that people might not necessarily think about all the time, or might not be the first movie that comes to mind. And then I think the first two, the number one and number two, are movies that probably a lot of people um, aren't necessarily familiar with, but are worth watching, in my opinion. Um, even from like outside of the whole like genre appreciation perspective, so 
Yeah, and, and that's what I want to point out is these are hidden gems. So just to be clear, so you're not going to see post-apocalyptic movies that are, you know, more popular, like, say, Mad Max and those kind yeah. of things. Right. That's um, the problem is, like, when you talk about that genre, there's definitely a handful of movies that are super well-known, you know, for, like, for good reason, that deserve to be, like, the, considered the cream of the crop of that genre. Um, and some other stuff. I mean, there's stuff like, there's stuff that could have made the list, like A Boy and His Dog could have made the list. Um, there's an Australian movie from the 80s called Dead End Drive-In that is going to be on the list someday because I love it. But um, I don't know why I didn't put it on this one instead of, like, some of the other ones. Um, there's Threads, you know, the, I don't know if you've ever seen Threads. It's the, um, like, the British made-for-TV movie about, like, the aftermath of a nuclear war. That's really good. Um, on the Beach, which is, like, another like post-apocalyptic like what happens to normal humans after you know nuclear holocaust so yeah okay i uh, mean next to like horror i i like b movies like 70s and 80s b movies in general but next to horror post-apocalypse might be like one of my favorite like guilty pleasure genres so do you think is that uh, do you think like in terms if you had to try to rank like if horror and then it's like subgenres is like your maybe most what where you're most knowledgeable I guess is what did you say post apocalyptic then might be like behind that or close to it and sorcery probably like those okay. two are hand in hand um, I mean in a lot of ways it's like what was terrifying to me and what was fascinating to me as a kid was just the idea of, like, the nuclear holocaust. I mean, as a child, I was, like, super petrified of the idea of, you know, getting nuked. And, like, when we were kids, maybe a little more, because I'm a little older than you. Like, I don't know if it was a little more for us, but we used to do the, um, like, the crawl under your desk, uh, civil defense drills, and yeah, no, I, I, go out yeah, we and did hide that. in the hallway. Yep. Drills and shit. I mean, we we talked a lot about because Chernobyl happened when I was in middle school, right? So we talked a lot about like, you know, just what are what are the effects of like nuclear holocaust or like nuclear meltdowns? There was a lot of like, like real like legitimate fear I think from our generation of that that was like a possibility. And it's funny because now we're actually living in the apocalypse and we're doing a fucking podcast. So I don't know. I mean, I guess <laughs> I guess right. life finds a way somehow. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, you couldn't live in the 80s without, I think, experiencing all of that. I mean, they were doing that even up to the top point of the, like, 92, 93. Um, making us go out in the hallway for drills and stuff like that. So yeah. even in the early 90s, like, that was persisting. But, yeah, it was, like, I, un, under the desks at one point. Then it was the hallway stuff um, that they did where you had to go, like, what, ducking – Duck and cover. Duck and cover, yeah. That's what um, I don't, South I don't Park really on makes it. fun of in the like that first season South Park that's so famous now. They have a duck and cover joke. I remember. Would you have been in elementary school in the early nineties still? Uh, no, I was in middle school by that point. Yeah, see, I don't remember us doing it in um, uh, middle school. We ever. did in sixth and seventh grade in middle school. 
so that would have been um, 90 to 92, roughly. I guess they had just given up on us. Right. Yeah, because I remember specifically having to go outside the gym area at the middle school and, like, which is really weird, too, because that's where the entrance is. So it's, uh, yeah, that's it actually didn't make a lot of sense now that I think about it. Like, okay. That's weird. Um, I weren't giving you much thought. Um, okay, you want to go ahead and jump in, then? Sure. All right. So um, just before we get into that, I just wanted to say that uh, we, I realized that we have an extra Sunday in, um, in this month. So next week we are going to have a another episode that we just kind of suddenly, um, you know, inserted into the schedule and it's something Frank's been wanting to do for a little while in terms of, um, I guess we're calling it kind of like verses, um, is like the rough like subtitle of uh, this type of episode, which um, is going to focus on Starry Eyes, um, a horror movie from 2013, I believe, or 14. And then um, Neon Demon, which I think is 2016, um, if I remember correctly, or 17. And um, so we're going to do this where we're going to kind of do more of a deep dive into like these two movies that are closely linked together um, due to their kind of thematic elements and their plots um, and talk about those in detail and see how that goes and might be something we do as extra episodes every once in a while um, of taking two movies that are closely linked together so we're going to be doing that next week and then um in the first week of september we're going to be doing the top five acid westerns and then the second week of september we will be doing the top five thrillers of the 2000s and then we'll have our break week and then coming back we will finish up the month with the top five best movies that haven't aged well. And um, in the meantime, you can still hear us um, doing the quick cage uh, every week. Um, usually drops Tuesday or Wednesday throughout the week. And we have that going on too. Finally, before we get into the fifth movie, I just wanted to say that um, I'm terrible about keeping up with uh, like things like Apple podcasts and those kind of things. So, uh, I noticed that we've uh, had a new comment that was on there um, recently. I wanted to thank the, the, the couple very much uh, for that those kind words. And just a reminder, everybody, that that is one of the best ways that you can possibly help us is to, um, on Apple Podcast or on whatever your podcatcher app is that you're using for download, is to leave reviews. Um, those kind of get us up higher in terms of our uh, uh, gaining notice. So... <clears throat> Um, we appreciate all the support. We've had a lot of new downloaders um, recently. Uh, as always, you can reach out to us on Facebook. You can reach us to us on Instagram, uh, or you can go ahead and email us at two guys five movies uh, at gmail.com. So, all that out of the way, um, your number five movie this week, Frank, is 1987's Hell Comes to Frogtown. Is directed by Donald G. Jackson and R.J. Kaiser. It stars Rowdy Roddy Piper, Sandal Bergman, and Rory Calhoun. Has a 63% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 47% from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about this movie and what you like about it? That's pretty surprising. Um, so it's set in a post-apocalyptic world where most of humanity has been rent. Most of male humans have been rendered infertile. 
um, through like widespread, uh, I guess, nuclear fallout and pollution. Um, women are pretty much in control of society. Uh, they run a organization called MedTech, which sort of like controls human interaction, and they um, identify Roddy Piper as being super fertile um, from following a string of pregnancies he's left behind him. Um, Roddy Piper's in trouble with the law because he's like a, uh, he's a, a rule breaker, an outlaw, whatever. Um, so they take him and fit him with a cod piece that's explosive if he doesn't follow him um, with the idea that he's going to impregnate this group of women um, who get kidnapped by these mutant frog people who live in a rundown like factory of some kind called Frogtown. Um, so Roddy Piper and Sandal Bergman um, have to go on a mission to rescue these women from Frogtown. Um, and that's pretty much the movie. Uh, it's by far the most like be like it's it's solid, you know, like late night Cinemax television, um, low budget exploitation. Uh, a lot of boobs, um, a lot of really, I guess, like, creative use of budget in terms of, like, the sets and stuff, which are sort of non-existent. Um, they convert, like, it looks like maybe an old, like, VW, I don't know, like, some weird, like, round station wagon into, like, this military vehicle for the med tech. And um, Piper is not as good an actor in this as he is in uh they live um this is like a really cheesy tongue-in-cheek performance by him um sandal bergman one of my favorite b actresses from when i was a kid um, more famously for playing uh conan's girlfriend in the conan the barbarian movie and the villain in red sonia um just pretty much i don't know kind of wooden in this movie like there's not really a lot of great performances but it's a pretty funny movie um, the frog costumes are surprisingly well done for being, like, all practical effects in 1987. Um, you don't get a lot of, like, movement in them, but their eyes move and their mouths move sometimes. And um, they're pretty pretty realistic looking, I guess, for being, like, giant frog people. Um, I mean, it's a pretty small movie in general. Like, it takes place, it feels like, in the span of about three miles, like, from where they take Roddy Piper, you know, away to where they go and rescue these women that have been kidnapped by these frogs. Uh, some really uncomfortable allusions, I guess, like bestiality. Um, obviously, one of the subtexts being like a 1980s B-movie is uh, the implied rape of people. Um, frog man on woman rape. Um, Roddy Piper, of course, has like a heart of gold and ends up falling in love with Sandal Bergman and He's going to impregnate all these women, but then they're going to go on vacation together. That's how the movie ends. Um, this is a movie that I saw in maybe the mid-90s on probably Cinemax or HBO um, on like a weekend night, like late at night, uh, when they showed all like the B-movies. Um, actually, that's not true. I saw this movie in an edited fashion on like UPN, I guess, on a Saturday afternoon. And then that was in like the early 90s and then saw it again when I was a little older. <laughs> I've always had a soft spot in my heart for it. Like I think it's kind of a funny take on the post-apocalyptic genre. Um, doesn't take itself seriously at all. Like there's no, 
real social commentary aside from maybe some very like broad like women can do anything men can do except that they all require can Roddy Piper to save them so I don't know like maybe that's not the commentary that's happening there um but you know for being a movie starring a professional actor and like a career B actress like it's it's, it's pretty decent Rory Calhoun's kind of funny in it um Bill uh Smith who plays the heavy in a lot of other like B movies from the 70s and 80s plays uh, the heavy in this movie, um, the human heavy, the guy that hates Roddy Piper because Roddy Piper impregnated his daughter and he's trying to kill him. Baron, Baron Sodom, they call him in it, which is can, like wholly inappropriate, I guess, but kind of funny. Um, so that's it. I don't know. Yeah. Like, if you want to see what low budget post apocalyptic movies look like, that's probably the best example. That isn't like just complete trash, you know, with like some actual competent actors that have done other things after that. Yeah, you say that like, I, I, I really don't see Piper, and maybe it's like nostalgia for me because we're both wrestling fans to some degree or another, um, especially with like stuff from the eighties and stuff like that. And I, I thought Piper didn't do any worse than most actors did during that time period with the role that he was given. Um, I, right. I don't I mean, I, I don't think Kurt, I don't think Kurt Russell's performance would be that much better than what Piper gave for the exact same role um, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, it's it's I, because, because the character itself is so just ridiculous and tongue in cheek. I mean, um, right. I, I, I get what you're saying. There's a few like lines that are delivered pretty poorly or just you know like uh, by a non-actor and stuff like that but i thought his attitude like i I don't think look i probably don't have a lot of respect for this movie when it comes down to it so it's probably i'm like you know right um you know i think it's one of those things that it's like it's so it's not so bad but it's like it's one of those things that's like so fun because it's not very good to me and I really right. enjoy watching it, but it's not a great movie. Although I agree with you, like on a lot of things you say, like in terms of um, the production, so, of it, even though it was low budget and stuff like that. But I, I, I think that Piper's, I don't know if that's because Piper's not a very good actor or if it's because Piper is, um, knows what he's doing because he's not taking the role seriously because he knows you shouldn't, it shouldn't be taken seriously whatsoever. And I'm not, I'm, I'm uncertain of that myself. Right. Like he doesn't feel the need to invest some kind of gravitas into it. Cause like you can watch Piper and like wrestling promos where he shows more like emotional investment and, you know, whatever, like sure. the broad range of human emotion that he does in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, mostly he's more concerned with like not having his dick blown off than he is with like, you know, <laughs> right, right, or like getting away, like running away from him. Mm-hmm. But so the reason that this is on the list, I mean, number one, this is like 100% like the nostalgia choice for this list. Um, but also because, like, again, this is like a really good broad representation of what a lot of these movies are like, which is. It's like that, like a director trying to have a very slight twist on the idea of like how how do humans react, you know, after society collapses, <clears throat> and with a more like tongue in cheek approach than a lot of movies take. Because one of the problems with a lot of these like low budget movies is 
they take themselves so seriously and they're just like not well done. So it's nice that in this movie, again, you know, Sandel Bergman, Rory Calhoun, um, Piper, uh, Bill Smith, like are all actors that have been in other movies and kind of have an idea of how to act. And I think there's a lot of love done to the special effects. Um, I think for using like a single set, basically, which is what the whole movie is, like they they do a pretty good job with the way they set up Frog Town, the way that it looks. You know, I mean, there's like only so much corrugated steel and like broken girders in the world that they seem to have found it all, like in that one warehouse. Right. Um, I don't know. It's just it's a it's a fun movie to watch. It, again, it's really like nostalgic for me to sit there and see it because I remember you know, watching it as a kid and, like, enjoying it. I think for somebody that's, like, not really into the genre, like, if you watch this movie, you can be entertained. And it's not, like, super creepy, like, super rapey. Um, It's not particularly, like, ultra-violent, you know. I mean, there's violence in it, but it's more so, like, cartoony violence than anything else. Um, So, I don't know. It's just an enjoyable movie. I can't believe it rates that high from a critical scale. The only thing I can think is that it must be, like, really like niche reviews from different like websites and stuff. <sighs> Unless there was like contemporaneous reviews. Like who's 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 reviewing this fucking movie? Uh well there's only eight ratings. <laughs> oh, okay. First of all. And um five are fresh and three are rotten. Yeah. And they are all from uh modern websites as opposed to nothing no nobody like contemporarily reviewed this movie it seems. Right. So I mean I don't know if anybody knew about this movie. It might it had to have been straight to video. Right. Did it have a theatrical release? I can't imagine. it had to be straight to video because it doesn't have a um a release or a whatever um it says in theaters why January first, nineteen eighty seven. Oh, didn't gross any money. Right. Yeah. January '87. That's what it says here. January first, nineteen eighty-seven was wide release. That's according to Rotten Tomatoes. Got a fantastic know. poster. Yeah, it does. Yeah. No, it's, and it's, the frog frog creatures actually look like they look in the poster. Like it's 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 a painted poster, which is a mm-hmm. like a lost art in a lot of ways. Right. Um. Yeah, I don't know. There's nothing really you can talk about this movie in terms of like artistic value or whatever, sure. except enjoyable. Yeah, no, it's a fun ride. I mean, I, I I definitely agree with that. I I had fun watching it. So, okay, so number four in your list, um, the infamous uh, Waterworld from 1995. It is directed by Kevin Reynolds. Stars Kevin Costner, Gene Triplehorn, Tina. Maj- Jorino and Dennis Hopper. It has a 46% from critics, and this was reviewed contemporaneously, right. and a 43% from audiences. Um, Want to tell us a little bit about probably the history of this movie for those that aren't aware of it, um, and the you know, reaction at the time period, and then what this movie is about, and why you have it on your list um, 25 years later. Um, so this was a movie that uh, Costner kind of used his name to help get funding for. Um, had a hundred hundred plus million dollar budget initially that ballooned to, Jesus, I think like $175 million or something, which was like 
the most expensive movie at the time, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, we're close to it. So this movie was covered, like the production of this movie was covered like crazy and, you know, like trade periodicals and whatever, things like Entertainment Weekly. Um, to the point where it almost had no chance of having any kind of success. Because it was a moderate, like, box office success, and had it not have cost, you know, almost $200 million to produce, like, it would have probably been profitable in the United States. But it was a joke to a lot of us, like, at the time, like, people that were into, like, knowing about current movies and watching movies, you know, like, there was a lot of jokes made about it. Um, so, so just for context here, I looked it up to refresh myself. So the budget was $172 million. The total... Um, cost once marketing and distribution came involved was 235 million um it did 88 million in the north american box office it did 176 million in the foreign box office so a worldwide total of 264 um that's 88 million in a world where like that's a lot of money to make in the box office. It absolutely is but then it's like you know and you know this obviously i'm just doing it for context here um you know, that doesn't take into account, obviously, the percentage that the theaters retain, you know, so oh, right. ultimately, you know, this ended up um, um, losing money uh, in, in terms of like the theater, um, but um, it did eventually end up becoming profitable and like going into the black right. um, through, uh, you know, TV broadcast and home video and all that stuff. So the reason that this is on the list 25 years later is because it's actually like a pretty decent movie. Um, and the other funny thing too, is like, I always remember this movie being three hours long mm-hmm. and I was shocked when it was, what, what is it, like two hours, right? Just under two hours or just at two hours? Uh, I thought like it was maybe, longer than that, but maybe it's not. Um, yeah, it's just over two hours, two, uh, 135 minutes. So yeah. yeah. So uh, two fifteen. Like but, but, but all that's crazy because of the, you know, so I mean. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I, we, I went to see this in the theater when it came out and I felt like this movie was like three hours long in the theater. Um, it felt really long to be watching at this time, though, too, so... Yeah, well... There's a there's a little bit of stuff... It's it's a bloated movie in some ways, and you probably could trim, like, 15 or 20 minutes out of the movie, and it would be, like, a lot tighter and a lot better. Okay. But it's a really interesting premise in the idea that the majority of the world is flooded. So, for people that haven't seen Waterworld or maybe have forgotten about it in the past, like, couple decades... The premise is that the world as we know it has ended, the polar ice caps have melted, water has risen by what, like, multiple feet, like, all over the world, so there's not much dry land left. Kevin Costner plays um, what you find pretty early on in the movie is a mutant, um, like a gill man, but he has, like, functioning gills behind his ears, so he can, like, stay underwater for long periods of time. Um, And he's this kind of like, I don't know, cantankerous traitor, traitor, not traitor, traitor that like just roams and um, trades with like the various human settlements. Uh, he basically, through a series of unfortunate events, ends up with um, Jan Triplehorn, Jean Triplehorn? Jean Triplehorn, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, some little girl who has a map on her back that goes to like the dry, dry land or dry world, whatever they call it. Um, and ends up on the high seas with them, and, like, that's how his adventure starts or whatever. Um, he's really a pretty strong anti-hero in a lot of ways. Like, he's not 
played for like it's a very long time before you actually have any real kind of sympathy for his character um and it's really pretty similar to the way that gibson portrays uh max in road warrior Mm -hmm. which is somebody that's like will help out if he's forced to or if it like benefits him but it's mostly about surviving and being on his own um it's got some pretty good you know set pieces like there's a lot of really impressive stunt work in it um just the sets themselves are kind of amazing like when you see when you realize that these were sets that were built in like giant swimming pools basically and the amount of like care and detail that goes into like all these sets um, again, I'm a sucker for the genre, so I probably have maybe a softer heart towards it than most people would. But, you know, I mean, Costner is a good actor, and he was definitely, like, kind of coming off, I guess, like his prime at the time. Because what's that after? Field of Dreams and Bull Durham and um, the fucking uh, Dances with Wolves. Like, so he no was... Way at, no Way Out? <laughs> well... Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I guess... That was, was, that was widely, like, uh, anticipated at the time, though. Sure. I mean, he was a star and yeah. probably like one of the biggest stars in Hollywood after people like Willis and um, I don't know, maybe Schwarzenegger at that time. Yeah, still alive. Um, yeah. So to have him be in a movie that was a bomb, you know, financially and critically, and much more like considered much more of a bomb, like when you think about it, like you think of this movie being like. an abject failure. And it's actually a pretty interesting movie, and I think it's got a pretty decent premise. Um, It doesn't really pull any punches. Like, it's a really rough look at the way that um, humans would treat each other in a situation where, you know, human life doesn't really have much value. Um, Like a predictably over-the-top performance by Dennis Hopper, but it's a really fun performance. Um, Some really, like, really weird, like, uncomfortable shit with him and his, like, fake eye and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but he's a, he's a memorable character in it. Um, and again, like, I just, I, I really love, like, the whole, like, piratey aspect of, um, what do they call them, the smokers or whatever, because they provide friggin', like, modified sea dudes and, I don't know, uh, gunships yeah. burn fossil fuels and whatever, so. Right. I mean, this is where where hell comes to Frog Town is like this very blasé commentary on like, oh, the world ended maybe somehow. This is like very much like, you know, we're killing the earth, we're polluting the earth. We have to save it. Like it's these, you know, over the top villains that are using fossil fuels are the reason that life is bad and whatever. So it's it's 100% like the opposite where it's a very pointed criticism of a lot of things. Um, and topical at the time because that's when you really were starting to hear a lot about global warming and the possibility of like ice caps melting and the sea levels rising. Um, and now we're just starting. Now we're just starting to live it twenty five years later. Right, right. And nobody believe or not nobody, right. But there's a section of the population that doesn't believe in science anymore. So, um, but I think it's an important movie to watch or at least talk about just because I think that it was so reviled that I feel like people have never given it a fair chance. And I think it's not nearly as bad as what people might remember or might just have the preconceived notion that it is. And I think that if you have the chance to watch it and you don't mind like spending the two hours, especially if you like, 
you know, like the, I don't know, like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies or like anything that's like the kind of like high adventure on the sea or whatever. Like I know that's not for everybody, but I think it's a fun movie. And I enjoyed watching it again this time. Right. Um, I enjoyed it much more than the first time I ever watched it. Um, I think you're right. I think that people took the controversy with them um, into the time about like, not the, not the controversy. Yeah, you're right. Preconceived notion of the idea that it's a failure because it was a box office failure to some degree. Right. They took that in with them and kind of like wanted it to be worse than what it was. Um, I still, I still think it felt like it was very long. Um, I thought there was like, I, I think the, the middle of the movie gets kind of muddled in terms of like the plot a little bit, like to where it's like, you're having a hard time not following along, but like, you know, caring. <laughs> um, well, because they, they make you spend the first like 50 minutes of the movie looking at this man as being like basically a, a mercenary, like a loner. Yeah. And then they have to try and kind of force you into liking him. So they have to then like develop his character all over again. I kind of feel like, yeah, it's, it's it's a thing where it's like it's really weird. It's like one of those instances to me where it's like it should have been twenty minutes longer or twenty minutes shorter. Yeah, um, I agree with that. And it, so Ebert actually at the time, um, I think is like one of the fairer reviews that I read of this movie. Honestly, he gives it a two point five out of four stars. And he says the controversy aside, um, Waterworld is a de- decent futuristic action picture with some great sets, some intriguing ideas, and a few images that will stay with me. It could have been more, it could have been better, and it could have made me care more about the characters. It's one of those marginal pictures you're not unhappy to have seen, but can't quite recommend. I would have welcomed more of those details about the global floating culture that the Mariner is a part of. But like so many science fiction movies, this one bypasses the best possibilities of the genre. Instead of the science and the speculation, we get a lot of violent action scenes. Costner obviously decided to play this character as a poker-faced outsider, not entirely human, and although that's a logical choice, it isn't a very entertaining one. It is similar to the role of Mad Max, uh, went for energy and good humor, and was more fun. There is also a certain lack of imagination in the story. These floating people have the whole globe to explore, but they seem to hang out in the same small patch of sea with the same characters. Are there different cultures elsewhere, different adaptations to the flood? The movie doesn't seem to care. Um, and I think that's pretty right on. And I don't think it like necessarily negates most of anything that you were saying. Like, you know, there's some really good stuff about this movie and could it have been a bit better at times? Sure. But it is what it is. And so let me, let me ask this question. Cause I was thinking about this when I was watching, especially because so spoiler alert, the movie ends with Costner getting, um, triple horn and the child to dry land. Um, and then kind of like going off himself, like again, like back out into the water world or whatever. Don't you think that if this movie would have been super successful, you would have had sequels to it where they would have explored that stuff? Possibly, like yes. that basically yeah. this was just the setup to the premise and to like build Costner. I mean, cause they invested, there were toys based on this movie and now oh, yeah, they put a lot of like, it, the the marketing wasn't just like the, tr- the traditional marketing for like a, a summer action movie. I mean, this was legit, you know, like meant to be the start of a franchise, I think, and like a kid friendly franchise of that. And I think that they probably would have had like more continuing adventures where they explored that stuff. 
and I don't think his points are invalid. I mean, you know, he's he's looking for something to be more in the vein of like a like a close encounters or something, right? Where you take like a fantastical idea and you invest it in like invest it with real science and it makes it a more believable like human story. Um, and they just want to like blow shit up and whatever. Right. Well, the, like, like all the Universal okay. has like a Universal has a, like a uh, what do you call it? Like a, a attraction, a right? Yeah, yeah like, attraction, a, like yep. um, and that makes and a lot of sense. That, that, what's that? And they've had it since whatever the year this movie came out, like a year after. Sure, opened. and and that and that, make, and that makes a lot of sense to me because that what that's what this feels like at a lot of times at different points. Like you have that like one big, I think, really good action sequence when the um kind of like the small community, the market on the sea um, that he goes to first. Like there's that whole like long sequence, which oh, is yeah. really really impressive. Um, plus impressively filmed, impressively shot, yes. like. And um, I think really engaging as an action sequence. And it's long. It's like 20 minutes long, that sequence, I think, almost. And with, like, pretty high stakes because he's, like, out of it for, you know, whatever, like five or six minutes where he's in peril and he's been in prison. Right. Um, and they have to have him escape. I mean, it really reminded me a lot. A, a couple other movies that don't really, like, have the best, I don't know, like, audience association maybe and like hook and cutthroat island you know these movies that are these big swashbuckling odes to like errol flynn kind and that's what this is doing but in a you know this whatever like aquatic post-apocalyptic setting and i don't know like, i think there's a lot of fun stuff in it and i think if like you know to call back what ebert says there like if you play this more like how Mel Gibson would have played the character in, you know, 1995, then I think that maybe this movie's a little more successful, but, you know, dour, like, mean Kevin Costner in this movie, he's not really, I mean, he's not the sex symbol that he was at the time, because, I mean, he was one of those, like, most handsome men in Hollywood types or whatever at the time. Sure. Because um, this is just a little before, like, George Clooney and Brad Pitt would step into those roles. Um, but Costner was definitely there. Like people were in love with Kevin Costner, especially like, you know, like middle-aged women. And then you've got this guy who's like abusive to women and doesn't care about them. And right. Like shit, you know, with his fucking like hand-me-down body glove wetsuit or whatever. And I don't know. So maybe their marketing wasn't the best. Maybe their reliance on trying to make it like this eco-friendly, like whatever eco-sensitive terrible or whatever wasn't the best idea maybe they could have done it if they just would have done a straight action movie right. um, where it would have been more successful but still I think you know again I think it's important because it is almost like you know you think of movies like Ishtar and Heaven's Gate and other stuff that were these colossal <laughs> failures right um, and I think it's interesting to actually watch these movies once in a while and talk about them so yeah yeah, like I said, it was it was more enjoyable than I remember, and I think overall a pretty decent action movie. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just it's it's fun. Like twenty five years later to sit there and kind of watch something without like that, whatever, that pressing 
thought of like how it was viewed in the like contemporaneously. Sure. Like it makes it a pretty interesting movie to watch. Yeah. No, I mean when you initially put it on the list, I was like, Why are you making me watch this? But I mean, right. yeah, it um no. There's a reason. This yeah. this would have been the dead end drive in spot, just FYI. Mm. You're gonna watch that movie someday. That movie's really fucking good. Okay. Okay, so number three on your list is 1991's Delicatessen, and this is where I start butchering names. Um, it is directed by Mark Caro and Jean-Pierre Junet. It is stars um, Dominique Pignon, uh, Jean-Claude Dreyfus, and Marie Leray Duniac. It has a 89% from critics and a 91% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. Want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about the movie and what it is that you like about it so much. Um, so the forerunner precursor, I guess, whatever you want to call it, to um, City of Lost Children, which we discussed in a previous episode, Jude mm-hmm. um, and Caro kind of built this dystopian whimsy, maybe, was a good way to describe like their style. Yep. Um, post-apocalyptic France. Um, where food is uh, at a premium and grain is the currency. Um, Louison is this unemployed clown that comes to live in the, the building where this butcher shop is um, as a tenant slash like worker. Um, kind of um, starts a romance with um, the daughter of the landlord that runs the place. Um, but the landlord is chopping up people and, you know, basically serving them to the citizens, um, which he catches on to. Um, there's this vegetarian rebellion, uh, the troglodytes or something like that, um, which is funny because I use that term to describe, like, People I think are idiots. Right. Um, so it's it's got a lot of the same. I don't know. Like I feel like all of these guys' movies are a combination of like a very artsy Tim Burton with like Rube Goldberg style filmmaking, if that makes sense. Where a lot of it's like cause and effect filmmaking. Like, this thing happens, and this thing happens, and you follow this chain of, like, action to this thing happening. I mean, there's that really long sequence in um, City of Lost Children with uh, when the fly bites, um, what's his name? Um, Fuck. The main actor in City of Lost Children. Anyway, another similar scene. Ron Perlman. Yeah, Ron Perlman. You know, where like a button flies off and hits this thing, and then steam flies up and hits this thing, and that causes like this guy to drop anyway. So there's another scene in this where two people are having sex on a uh, like a spring mattress that causes all these things to happen, and they're really brilliant at like kind of the the following the chain of cause and effect and the way that they kind of present like a threatening environment. I mean, it's it's a pretty dark movie. It's a much darker movie. Well, I don't know, because City of Lost Children is about like child abduction and mm-hmm. the essence of humanity. So I guess it's not more dark. But, you know, they, they follow these, like tackle these dark themes in almost like a fairy tale kind of way. Right. Um, where characters are 
both larger than life and comical, but also can be super intimidating. Um, they do a lot of visual. I mean, the movie opens with a guy masquerading as trash. Um, so he can be taken out in the trash can so he can escape being butchered by um, Clappet. And um, I mean, unsuccessfully. Um, and they like to do that thing like, I don't know if, what's what's the main actor's name in this? Uh, Pinon? Yeah, Pinon, yeah. Like, they love that dude. And they he's do, been in multiple yeah. of their movies. And it's like, he's got this, like, perfect mm-hmm. frame for, like, low-angle shots where his head is, like, fucking gigantic and it makes him look like right. a cartoon almost. I mean, I guess, like, you know, that's his physical comedy is like his gift and the way that he can support his body. But like, they love that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, because he plays the clone and, um, yeah, 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 City of Lost Children. Um, when I saw this movie, like, I had no idea what to expect. It was just one of those things where it was like a recommendation from somebody I knew. Um, the cover of the box art was like, I don't know, not not really appealing, but like sort of interesting, like the pig and whatever. And um, I don't know, like I was pretty blown away by it at the time. Like I I loved these guys a lot more when I was a teenager in my early twenties than I do now. Um, I still really appreciate like the artistry that goes into their movies, and I think that it's um, I think that their movies are worth watching because there's a lot of very like a lot of stuff that you would see Tim Burton do, like these guys were doing, but in a much more like avant-garde way to tell like really like troubling stories in a way that's, you know, like how you read Snow White and you don't really think about how Snow White's about, you know, the subjugation of children and like sure. abuse and, right. um, you know, you don't think about, or not Snow White, that's Sleeping Beauty, I guess. Sleeping Beauty, yeah. Um, you don't really think about like how the brothers Grimm are always talking about like child murder and stuff because of the context that it's told in, and because mostly you see it as Disney movies and cartoons or whatever. Um, and that's kind of what they're doing here is they're telling like these modern day fables that are about really dark themes, but they're doing it in a way that you know has this childlike sensibility to it, and it makes it um makes it pretty interesting, and I, I think it makes it like they're really entertaining watches like all other movies. And we'll never talk about Amelie on a list, so this is your chance to talk about them. Yeah. Like Amelie so much. Well, I mean, I, 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 I can do that, and um, but <clears throat> I'll talk about it in a slightly different way. Like in in making this the focus is that I think some of the criticism of them sometimes, like uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, like um, for instance, I have written down here. Uh, his critique of it is there are no characters to care about or remember afterwards. It's just a lot of flashy technique involving decor, some glib allegorical flourishes, and the obligatory studied film school weirdness. Um, which, if you want to respond to any of that at some point, like feel free. But I, I think it's... So um, the one thing that I respond to is Louison and um, what's her name? Uh, Julie. I I root for them, you know, watching the right. movie. Like, I feel like I care about the two of them as characters, and I want them. Because there's that really great – they have a really 
almost like Billy Wilder-esque sense of like the physicality of human beings near each other. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Where it's like when they're almost kissing a few times, but then something right. moves them in the opposite direction. And you kind of feel like you're watching like the 40s or 50s like golden era like comedy at that point. That's and brilliant. I think that that's... Yep. I mean, I think that that's a really good way to build character and build investment in those characters without a lot of dialogue and soliloquy. Like, that's not what those movies are about. You know? I mean, like, the French love, like, their physical comedy, and they love, I don't know, like, that kind of shit, I guess. Yeah, so, right, yeah. But I, 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 I think that's a... Again, it's like, it's a combination of, I mean, it's, 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 it's the weirdest genre ever. These dudes are creating like this, it's, it's not just art school, like weirdness just to be weird. You know, it's not, I don't. Right. Well, what, here's what I'd say is I, I, I think that this is, this is something, this is 91. This is something that came in these, in the States a lot more prevalent, I think, um, probably around the time of Amelie, actually, like, you know, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, where you started to see this kind of like, you know, sweet, overly sentimental um, stuff that the critics like started to term, like always using the term saccharine to describe. Um, And I think that, you know, that kind of, and I think you described that idea of saccharine much better than the critics ever have by using that term. Like by saying it's it's supposed to be like fairy tales, you know, and right. you're taking this dark subject matter and you're making it, um, you know, in, you know, putting in this kind of like fairy tale light. So, um, and like, as I've been thinking about this movie, particularly kind of off and on, like since I watched it, because it's the first time I'd seen it, I had seen City of Lost Children from when we watched it before. Um I think those elements get increased as time goes by. Like I know like Caro doesn't, um, it, it, it's it's Junet that directs Amelie, or like writes and directs yeah. it. But it's like I would say that Amelie's peak saccharine, if we're going to use that terminology. Sure. Um, and I still like that movie, um, but I think there is a ways that you can go too far. Um, so I mean, as someone who you know loves the Gilmore Girls um, up until a certain point, at least I guess. But um, and you know, absolutely. I'm in love with Pushing Daisies, um, you know, and those kind of things. I mean, Pushing Daisies is definitely like a prime example of this. Is this is what they were doing? Is taking like the darkest subject matter, right? Um, possible, and you know, making it sweet and light, and you know, all these things. And I think like that's a direct, um, you know, connection to something like Delicatessen. And I, I think that yes. Delicatessen is actually maybe. I think you asked me this in person, but it was like you know. I might actually in some ways like this a little bit. It's really tough. I might like it better than City of Lost Children the more I think about it because it, it's, they haven't, if, if Amelie's peak saccharine, they're like working their way up. Right. You know, and it's like, I think that it's just enough here to give you that fairy tale feel um, and that sweetness without going too far into the other direction. I mean, here's, here's what I would say, just in direct response to, like, that criticism. You have a movie that is about humans surviving in a post-apocalyptic world 
through cannibalism and murder. Or murder than cannibalism, I guess. And that movie ends with a fucking Looney Tunes sequence of an overflowed bathtub washing away the villains, right? Sure, sure. Like, that's absurd, but it's also kind of brilliant, you know, because you've seen this movie that would have been... Because trust me, I've seen plenty of fucking cannibal movies that are not, like, fun to watch and that are pretty depressing. Right. Even some that are really well done. Mm-hmm. And, like, to watch that movie, but, like, you know, have this slapstick, like, comedy at the end of it that still makes it a satisfying, you know, them playing music on the rooftop or whatever, the satisfying ending. Like, I think that's brilliant. I think that... Right. I I think that if you equate that just with like art like art house weirdness that you're missing the point of what they're trying to do in the movie. Yeah. Um so I don't know. Yeah, I mean there's a certain amount of whimsy that becomes it's like it's like Wes Anderson is somebody who has a lot of whimsy, uh, you know, to him. And um but I don't know. I I think that whimsy uh can still be done the right way. And I think it is done the right way in this case. And I think it's done the right way in city of lost children too. It's just, I think that through time, while it doesn't bother me, I think to a casual viewer, like to a casual audience, like, you know, that just like watches a movie just for it. I think something like this is much more something that a casual audience member might still enjoy. And then you get further into their filmmaking and their partnership. And then like, you know, you get some of Janae's stuff later, um, it might be go too far for them, you know. Um, but I, I think this is um, no, it's just a really good, fun movie. Um, yeah, sure, dark subject matter, but I think it's done really well, and I think it's brilliantly filmed. Um, the only yeah, criticism I, I would have is I think it goes a little bit too much into the troglodytes. Um, right. Uh, yeah, you know, which you are correct. Like they they call them something. I mean, the French word's different for 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 it, but it means troglodyte. Um, like like, like troglodytes or, or something. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, right. But it's troglodyte. Yeah, right. Um, I don't know. like they they just like, like I said. I think that they have a brilliant way of telling a story visually that's satisfying and entertaining at the same time, and I think that's kind of. Her gift and I think that this movie like really illustrates that talent. Yeah. And it fits the fits the fucking list, so who is that? Rosenbaum that made that comment? It's Jonathan Rosenbaum, yeah. And that that dude. Jonathan Rosenbaum, um, who's also the Chicago reader, like our good friend Dave Kerr was for many years after Rosenbaum took over for Dave Kerr when Kerr stopped writing for um as the primary critic for Chicago Reader. Um, yeah, Rosenbaum is slowly becoming like, you know, and we got, oh man, we talk, there's going to be a lot of talk about Rosenbaum in two weeks because the amount of research I've done in terms of Aston Westerns and he literally wrote the book on it. Um, so we will be talking about Mr. Rosenbaum, um, quite a bit in two weeks. Um, but yeah, he's slowly becoming like one of my, like, uh, least favorite critics where I've come to like kind of appreciate Dave Kerr, like for just being like glib but still um, right. um Rosenbaum's just somebody that I just generally don't like. Um right. Yeah. He doesn't have the same wry um sense of self satisfaction that Dave Kerr has at like shitting on Right, right. Ro- Rosenbaum's just a dick. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like right. 
kid. Dave Kerr is leaning back, twiddling his mustache and sipping on a scotch and Rosenbaum's like taking a massive dump on the <laughs> film canisters in the fucking projection booth. Yeah, there's uh, there's the, the line from Aliens um, that I'll always, like, I'll never, like, you know, i always forgive Dave Kerr, like, because there's that line at the end of the Aliens review that he has where it's like, you know, um, this movie has bodies. Some of them are played by, like, X, Y, and Z. <laughs> and it's like, um, it's like, that's the kind of humor that I'll always forgive him for when it comes down to it. Like, right. Okay. Right. So number two on your list is 1988's When the Wind Blows. It is directed by Jimmy T. Murakami. It stars uh, voice actors John Mills and Peggy Ashcroft. It is an 86% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 88% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this animated movie and what it is that has it so high on your list? Um, so... It's one of the few movies in this genre that sort of follows like pre-apocalypse and post-apocalypse and very near like post-apocalypse. Like there's not, it's not a, like every other movie pretty much that you watch in the post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, see you got me, post-apocalyptic genre is going to involve some fantasy element where it's very, you know, it's these roving bands of warriors or whatever. There's mutants or blah, blah. Um, and this is one of the few movies, this and a movie called Threads, where it's a very realistic look at what would happen in the event of like a nuclear attack and what's the aftermath of it. And it basically is just, it's, it's a very simply animated movie. It's a combination of hand-drawn cell animation with um, some stop motion uh, practical animation. So the house they live in is done as like a miniature set with some stop motion animation and their animated um, characters like among like the set. And a few like um, real life photos too, right? Yeah, an, a, a lot of it. Um, of these retired couple that lives in the English countryside, um, elderly that, you know, is learning about the possibility of um, an impending Russian strike against Britain. Um, and they're... Pro- you know, their preparations leading up to the strike, uh, the day of the event, um, and then, like, the aftermath leading up to their deaths. Um, very small movie. Uh, they're the only two characters in the movie, aside from some ancillary characters that you either mentioned or on the phone. Like, he talks to his son who lives in uh, London. Um, really kind of heartbreaking uh, when you watch, like, this really like practical old man who believes in, you know, you follow what the government tells you, you do the right thing and things will work out okay. And his wife, who's much more pragmatic about things and is kind of like, well, I'm just going to continue to soldier on with my life. And, you know, I got to make the tea and I got to do the laundry. And, you know, even at the point where the bombs are being dropped and he's trying to get her into his makeshift, like lean to shelter that he's built in the living room and, she wants to turn the kettle off because it'll burn and, you know, she doesn't want to like let the milk spoil or whatever. So, I mean, having, having elderly parents myself, um, I don't like these elderly, but my parents are older. Um, and it's very like eerily similar to them, like their relationship and the way that they talk to each other right. and just watching like these two people try to survive and try to rationalize 
you know, I mean, their house is destroyed. Like that scene where they're so when the bombs get dropped, they show a scene where their entire house is basically like washed in nuclear energy or whatever the atomic, like the atomic blast, and the windows are blown out and all the furniture is destroyed and you know there's fallout like everywhere, and he's trying to keep her. Like, you need to stay in, you need to not go out, and she just wants to go out and have tea, and he eventually relents because he loves her, and just, like, watching them fall apart, you know, like, develop sores and radiation sickness, and both eventually, like, just lay down together to die. It's, um, it's pretty powerful, and it's crazy that you're watching, you know, like, what basically amounts to really just basic animation. I mean, it's the same animation team that did The Snowman, if you've ever seen it, um... I know when I was young, that was, like, pretty, a pretty popular animated movie to watch. Sure. Um, but, like, a really adult, you know, centered story and just, I don't know, really kind of horrifying and heartbreaking at the end. And I think really well written is, like, a slice of life, you know, like yeah. family drama with this horrific backdrop to it. Um, and a movie that I'm not sure is, like, really that well known. Um, I had never heard of it before. Yeah. So originally, and while I haven't seen as much as you, you know, I I know I at least have heard of things before, like yeah. a lot, you know, and it's like I've never heard of this movie. So I I found out about this movie because of we were trying to find threads to watch for a long time, um, and I've mentioned that a few times. I probably should have been on the list. But I put this on instead because I feel like this is lesser known. Um, threads being a similar movie, which is about a British family pre and post nuclear attack for this it's a live action movie. Um so I found out about this movie because of threads and then I ended up I don't know where I got a bootleg copy from, but I got a bootleg copy of it from somewhere. And just I don't know, just like amazed by how um like adult it was. But I don't think it really struck me at the time because, you know, my parents were younger and I didn't really think about that didn't really have like a personal connection to me, I guess, like it did this mm-hmm. time. Um, but really, it was much more, I think, impactful watching it like this time. This is only the second time I've seen this movie, too. Um, I also kind of knew about it because Bowie does the opening theme song for it. Yeah, a great theme, yeah. Mm-hmm. And was supposed to do, was supposed to score the entire movie that did something else instead. And I can't remember what, like, he was, um, maybe like a Tin Machine album or something he was like obligated to do. And so he couldn't like finish the rest of this. Um, so it went to Roger Waters to do the uh, the score for the movie. Um, but some really interesting like pseudo, I don't know, like, I don't want to use the term psychedelic, but there's definitely some like avant-garde like filmmaking techniques just in the way they do. You know, the like showing the imagination of the couple and um, I just like I I love the characterization. I love the way that the actors, the voice actors, do the two, the two people. Like you know, the husband being like so, like straight laced and wants to follow the right way to do things, and the wife being more concerned like oh it'll be fine, like as long as I can have my tea and biscuits and I don't know. Right. It's just a really good movie, and it's really um, like I said, I think it's kind of a. Uh, kind of sad that it's like not really a well-known movie although maybe it's not really that popular a genre anymore because who really like thinks about nuclear annihilation sure except for the fact that it's like watching 
this movie, I think, during COVID certainly rings different than it did two years ago, maybe. Um, uh, just when you're looking at the reactions of these two people. Um, right. And, you know, yeah, like there's this guy who's extremely earnest and you're on his side and it's like his devotion to the state and, you know, their guidelines and those kind of things um, is, comes, it reminds me of almost like the unknown citizen or something like that, like the oh. old poem. Yeah. It's like, you know, this blind devotion to the state and then, but he doesn't have the full intellect or, you know, knowledge base to understand the guidelines completely. So he's constantly just kind of like, Oh, well this will be good enough. Like, you know, um, and that's really sad to watch, you know, is like somebody who doesn't have the ability to understand the guidelines that are set forth. And then there's the idea of breaking the guidelines because you want to do, like you said, like go make the tea, you know? Um, And then there's the idea that like, even though he's much more stringent about making sure they stay in their little lean to, which is just the saddest thing in the world to like see, he forgets at one point and just starts moving around the house. Like two days later just comes out and is like, Oh, well let's look at this, you know? And I, and it's like, like that kind of trifecta of not understanding the guidelines or how to follow them. Um, breaking it because you want to do something else. And then like, just kind of like absentmindedly forgetting sometimes the world that you're living in. Um, to me was extremely depressing considering the world that we're living in right now. Um, And while I might have currently like certain feelings about people that are breaking guidelines and stuff like that, I think putting it into this couple, this older couple, this, you know, elderly couple who's trying to, you know, figure these things out and has only known a certain life for 70 years and have them have them be the protagonists of this thing and watch that happen i think is an absolutely devastating movie to watch right. um and in terms of animated movies being kind of like just like my stomach sinking watching it the only movie that has beat this so far and will always beat it is grave of the fireflies um but I had a similar, but not as severe, not nearly as severe as reaction watching this that I did Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah, like to me, this is very, um, very much in the same realm as something like Watership Down. Mm-hmm. Um, just to put it in context of like similar time period, similar like anim- not really similar animation style, but you know, like Western animation as opposed to like Asian. Right. Um, just that it's a very adult, you know theme and not really anything action-packed but you know i don't know how many people like sat their kids down like oh look it's it looks like the snowman like, you should, you should watch <laughs> right right um but yeah like i i don't know just it's it's, it's a very like emotion it, you emotionally connect with these people and like your description of the um the husband it, it's it's accurate you know here's a guy who's some sort of like civil servant all his life, you know, he's a man, he's a handyman, 
can follow basic instructions without like much comprehension of what he's doing. And it's just continuously like, well, you know, the pamphlet says, you know, the documentation says, you know, the preparedness committee says, um, but is still like getting on his bicycle trying to ride to the store to get milk, you know, three or four days after a nuclear strike, not even realizing that civilization is not going to exist anymore. You're not right. going to go right. and like ride to the corner store anymore. So, and that is like a really sad and kind of ominous parallel with like your modern life you know what i mean that like you don't have that ability anymore really right i mean you still can but it's not the same thing so i don't know yeah i i i've drunkenly texted you about like my bullshit in the past like week about um me thinking way too much maybe because of this list or maybe because of covid about entropy and i this is one of those movies that I've actually I've been thinking about when it comes to that. It's this and the first movie, I guess. But um, I'm not going to spend too long on this because I don't want to put my own like personal bullshit too much out there. But it's like, but I, I I think what it is is like as I've been thinking about that concept and I've thought about like all these movies like you know to one degree or another in regards to that. I think this movie is the one that strikes me the most about that is um is what it is 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 the ignorance that everything decays and that's what makes this heartbreaking like to watch is like you know the first movie we're going to talk about like you know like fully understands that's what happens where you know and those people are resigned to that world right this is uh this is a a set of a couple a set of people that don't understand not only the circumstance they're in, but it's like they don't even understand the natural order of things. Right. You know, and, and, and how this certain specific situation is going to make that even worse. You know, it's, it's like... like it, yeah, it's not even a high-minded ideal of humanity that they're trying to save. It's just the mundane regularity of afternoon tea and, right. you know, fresh milk or whatever. Like, that's the most depressing part about it, I think. It is. And it's like, you know, it's like to some degree, because they're an older couple, it's like they should fully realize the idea, that idea of decay, you know, of natural decay. And it's like they they still can't understand this idea of nuclear destruction or nuclear radiation or anything like that. It's like it's still he he has the idea that he's going to be recruited to be a like a watchman or whatever by the armed forces where he's going to go out and like help people at night in London right. in like the rubble right. of the bombing because his yeah. whatever like perception of it is that it's going to be no worse than, you know, they survived the bombings in 44 in Britain. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't they survive now and just like not even be able to grasp the the magnitude of how awful yeah, I was laughing, so I didn't cry. Yeah, it's 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 awful. Like you know, like just the complete and utter ignorance and misconception. Right. Like oh, we we got through H one N one, like the swine flu and the bird. Like how is right. this any different? You know, and it's like, right. well, there's degrees to things. You know? like, sure, right. Because you survived like X doesn't mean that Y is anywhere near the same. Or just because but, you don't see, um, you know, Y in your immediate vicinity doesn't necessarily right. mean that it doesn't exist or it's overblown either. Right. Yeah, um, 100%. We just had to hear about that ourselves. So, um, but yeah, uh, 
Like I, yeah, it's 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 a it was a difficult movie to watch. I think it would have been difficult a year ago, a little bit to watch for me. Um, it's it was a it was I it, it bordered borderline devastating to watch now. Yeah, it's true. So, um, and I know, all right, yeah. All right, so number one on your <laughs> list. Um, I I just had David S. from Rotten Tomatoes, like you know, not even Super Reviewer to like use as the um, as the criticism. So I'm just going to skip David S. Um, yeah. But although he does recommend to check out Grave of the Fireflies for a more human look at the after effects of nuclear holocaust. Um, David S. does, and it's like, if you can't see the humanity in this, then there's something wrong. Yeah, I'm not going to shit on Grave of the Fireflies. That's an amazing movie. No, of course it is. But, like, you know, if you can't see the humanity in this, just like you can see the humanity in that, then, yeah, it's, you're, you're, you're missing something. So, like a soul. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, so, uh, Sorry, David. Else. I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. Oh. Sorry, he's not a super reviewer. He doesn't have a soul anyway. Right. Um, yeah, fuck it then. Fix your heart, David S., or die. Um, so number one on your list is... Man, I didn't realize how close all these movies are together until just now. Um, it's 1989's Dead Man's Letters. Yeah. Um, it is directed by Constantine Lupushkinsky. Um, Roland Bykoff. Eozif Reichlin and Victor Mikhailov, and it has a not available score from critics and a 90 percent from audiences. Yeah. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about the maybe ultimate hidden gem here, I guess. And um, uh, yeah, so this is um, this movie is really interesting because it's one of the only movies I've seen that directly deals with a post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic setting that's made by and set in the Soviet Union. So in the majority of these movies, um, especially a lot of the ones we haven't talked about, the general premise is that the evil um, Soviet empire has launched nuclear weapons and decimated the Western world um, and basically like made our civilization in inhabitable, uninhabitable, and that's the after effects. So seeing it from this perspective, and Stalker, which is another movie that had we not have talked about it a couple times, would have made this list. Um, that has the same kind of feel to it, but this one's very much, very clearly stated that this is the after effects of a nuclear attack. Um, so it takes place in a small Russian town. Um, where a group of historians and um, intelligista, I guess, like the whatever, like the literary like elite of their area are huddled together in this bunker, um, trying to live life, um, trying to come to terms with like what life is. Um, the government has really strictly regulated what people are allowed to do, um, including like who's allowed to be out on the streets, when you're allowed to be out on the streets, who's even welcome to come into the bunker, you know, where you're going to be, like, people can be, like, more safe than in these bombed out, you know, fallout-ridden buildings. Um, 
it's filmed in a. I guess it was filmed in black, maybe in black and white with just like colored filters, or maybe it was filmed in color with colored filters. But like, it's got like a, a sepia tone for much of the movie. Then it kind of has a. I don't even know what you would call that tone, like a washed out, like bluish, like tint sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where the hell they filmed this movie, but definitely feels like a ruined like city. Like it feels like radiation swept and desolate and destroyed. Right. Um, deals, I think, with a lot more maybe like high-minded, like philosophical conceits of life in a post-apocalyptic world, such as um, like what remains behind of you when you die and like what can you consider your legacy and is it worth like saving things that have historical or cultural merit as opposed to like just being focused on like, trying to save human lives or your own life or, you know, continuing to live. I mean, there's a lot of like really like petty ideals that are like discussed in the movie and brilliant performances by the main character, the main actors, none of whom I have any idea like anything about. Um, I didn't even know much about this director. Um, this is a movie that like I barely remember seeing like parts of when I was young and it took me a little while to even find out what it was called because I didn't know the name of it. Um, but you know, I didn't even, I didn't know really anything about this director before I really started researching it, but just like a pretty devastating movie with like one of the best screenplays, like especially some of the stuff that, um, the main character, the uh, professor or whatever he is, um, doctor, 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 yeah. like, you know, some of the, I don't know if you can call him soliloquies. I hate using that term, but like monologues, I guess that he gives. Mm-hmm. Um, one of which, like you copy and pasted to me in a text that's apparently your eulogy when you die. Um, at like two o'clock was, in the morning. That was that was the alcohol again. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a really brilliant movie, and it's 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 one of those things where so it's free on YouTube, um, as well as a couple of uh, the director's other movies. I think it's something where it's it's worth watching without a lot of, like, I mean, there's a lot of things you can discuss in this movie without giving away, like, plot details, I guess, mm-hmm. um, because the plot's pretty basic, just in the idea that, you know, like, will there, won't, like, is he or isn't he going to go into the bunker? Um, and eventually it comes down to the fact of, there's other people involved that he would have to leave behind in order to go into this bunker. And like, is it better for him to kind of sacrifice his own like potential continued existence? And like, what does that existence even entail in this life or to like kind of sacrifice himself to the sort of greater good? Is that a good enough description? Like, do you think that that kind of covers like, cause I don't want to. Yeah. I, the, the last third of the movie, I think, is really important to come into blind. Right. And, like, not know what you're coming into because then you don't expect it, sort of. Yeah, I and I think it makes it more poignant and effective, like, the end of that movie. Yeah. And I think to speak to, like, the like, 
I think both of these movies, you just said that, like, you know, there, there's there's not a lot that goes on. They're, like, pretty small in terms of plot. But I think that's the brilliance of both of those, these top two movies, is that there's not a lot going on in terms of plot. Um, and I think it allows you to marinate in the subject matter and what's going on with the characters in it, even more so because there's not a lot going on. And you get to really fully take in their worldviews, their life, uh, you know, styles, their, their, their thought processes and the world in which they're inhabiting. I think you get to take in all that more because you're not like, you know, being dazzled by, you know, too much. And I think that I, I, the only other thing I think I would say philosophically about this is going back to that point earlier, the comparison I was drawing with entropy is that this is a, to some degree, this is a love letter, I think, to humanity written before the end comes. Um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I think it's like of what humanity is capable of, was capable of, and um, what's that quote that I remember reading at one point? It's like to the... Um, you. You owe living. You you owe respect to the living, to the dead. You owe only truth. It's like I think it's a truthful look at what humanity was, and I think that's why like yeah. it struck me so much that speech that night um, after I'd had a couple of drinks, um, you know, and sent you and said like I want you if if you make it past me, I want this to be like you know I want you to like say this at my funeral. Um, but I think that's what struck me about that speech by that character who's getting ready to go die is that, you know, he's looking back on humanity and assessing it objectively, you know, and I think fairly for what humanity is. Um, but there's a lot of views of humanity throughout that. And I think that's what makes it interesting is all these different characters have these different views of what came before um, when they're all in this fucked situation, and again, I couldn't help probably but relate that to our current situation, um, even though theirs is worse. Right. Um, because because well, no, it's, I, it's there's, very similar. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's right. I mean, it's like it, philosophically speaking, not like literally. sure, sure, uh, right. But it's like there, there's one character that. Um, is sending a telegram and I don't even know if telegrams actually exist in that world. I couldn't tell like if this was just the, like somebody like almost like deranged living in the old world still, like as he's like um, having someone dictate a telegram. Um, But he says that we should acknowledge the fact that the whole history of mankind is a story of slow suicide committed by living matter that by sheer accident acquired the ability to think, but that did not know what to do with this fateful capacity full stop. Um, and so it's like, that's just like one example beyond like, you know, that, that big monologue which you're talking about, like, you know, the, the, there's so many different views of humanity and like where they're at in the world then and what they were before that I think there's these competing ideologies that are just fascinating inside of like, even if it's a, like not a great plot, like in the sense of a lot of things happening, I think it's really fascinating to see all these things come up and butt up against one another. Sure. And the fact that there's characters who have like really strong ideals until they're presented with, the ultimate decision they have to make and then you know those ideals aren't quite there anymore yeah 
No. Or, you know, to draw like another kind of comparison to the modern like state of our lives and people who just kind of feel like, well, I kind of think if I do these things, it's not as bad as everybody thinks it is. Right. The absolute right. arrangement, the idea that as long as you have this positive outlook on stuff that like, if I don't believe in it, it's not there kind of. Right. You know, yeah. but in the end, like, I mean, there's, Again, like it's the it's, it's the way that it's filmed, like the the yeah. sepia tone like really presents more than any other like of these apocalyptic movies like a feeling of desolation and mm-hmm. just ruin. Um sure. and the setting itself is getting brilliant, like these burned out buildings and bombed out buildings and And is did you want to quickly want to talk about you said this off air to me um the other week, but um you said you actually think beyond the movie Stalker, you you thought that this probably movie might have inspired the actual look, possibly of those video games. Yeah, um, and from I, I, the, I think Fallout also to an extent, like thinking about yeah. it, like the way that the buildings look and the fact that there's just like absolute like destruction and disarray, but then there's things like. I mean, in the Fallout universe, it's like bottle caps and shit like that. But, you know, there's plenty of stuff, like, on their desks and in their world that, you know, let's make a Christmas tree out of this, like, detritus, basically, that's left laying around, and then that thing becomes precious. And just the idea that, like, they almost, like, fetishize these relics of the past that we don't even look at as important. But, yeah, like, the Stalker series, the Fallout series, like, I think that, you know, I mean, obviously, I think that he was inspired by Stalker, but he worked on Stalker too, the director. Um, there's another one called Two Swans that's on YouTube that's post-apocalyptic. It's based on um, the novel by the guys that wrote uh, Roadside Picnic, which Stalker is based on. So I'm, I haven't watched it yet, but I'm probably going to watch it sometime this week. But yeah, it's just, it's it's a really brilliant movie, I think. that. Where's that at? It's on YouTube. Oh, okay. There's... um. So this is like sidebar, but if you're really interested, there's a lot of Russian, there's a lot of Eastern European and um, Asian, like Korean and Vietnamese movies that are just free and subtitled on YouTube. Um, like you got to kind of dig for them, but once you start finding them, like, you know, you can look up the descriptions, like Wikipedia is pretty good for that. And like, you find a lot of really good stuff. I've watched a few just like weird like South Korean like art house movies in the past couple of months because of that. Um and I have a bunch of stuff that's saved on my YouTube watch list just from looking this movie up and finding other stuff that is related. I mean as long as you're looking for like older stuff that's generally not in print in the USA, YouTube's a pretty uh, fantastic resource for that. Right. Yeah. And most no. of them like oh like um movie called Come and See, which is an anti-war movie. I think it's Polish, maybe, or Serbian or something. Um, that's kind of heartbreaking that's on YouTube for free. Um, just there's a lot of like really great stuff that you might not see otherwise just because of our like mostly antagonistic towards um, Russia and Eastern European um, countries like for the majority of our lives. So, right. yeah, but this movie's fantastic, and I think that yeah. Absolutely, I, I I think it's worth watching. Like no matter what your interests in, I mean I don't know that it would appeal necessarily to everybody, but I think that if you can kind of take um, some more like abstract thought in your films and 
you know, definitely like a little more like of an art house approach to like the filmmaking process. I think it's a hundred percent like worth watching. So, sure. Um, and 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 just like the second movie when the wind blows, I mean, this is a depressing movie. Like this, this oh, yeah. isn't like a. There, there's there's nothing feel good about this. Um, and me, you, and um, you know, friend of the podcast, Mike Bledsoe was uh, we were talking last night a little bit about. Um, uh, kind of like Russian thought and stuff like that, and like about like suffering and those kind of like, things. And um, yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely to me like a through line in this movie of the idea that like suffering is just a given in life. And um, you know, so that would be my only warning is if, like that's not your cup of tea. Like you know, then eh. I mean, it's it's funny because most most movies that are set like in some sort of like fall of civilization style like world mm-hmm. have some measure of hopefulness. Like even something right. that's like brilliant movies like Fury Road, you know, have this sure. or like, you know, the other Mad Max films, they have this beat of like mankind is gonna pull through. Like mankind is gonna let life is gonna find a way. Even if the rest of the movie is violent and depressing and, you know, but these movies, like, they're almost anti-hope. I mean, and you could argue that there's a part of this movie at the end that maybe evinces, like, the tiniest bit of hope, but it's the bleakest, like, smallest kernel. Right. And I think that right. you can view it as being, like, the futility of hope almost, maybe. So, I don't know. But, yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I wonder again if the idea that this is an old man like both of these first two movies deal with the idea of old men. Um, I mean, old man, old woman, obviously. And, and yeah. when the wind blows, but it's like, again, I wonder if that's like purposeful in some ways, like, you know, it has to be right. Like, yeah, you know, I think so. yeah. It's like, how does, how does, how does the old person react to this? You know? Well, you know, and that's, that's one of the themes in when the wind blows is that his son it's just going to ride it out, you know, like despite his father's advice. And, you know, we've talked about like how that father doesn't even have all the facts mm-hmm. or doesn't have the facts straight. Like the son is just going to ride it out in London. Like, right. You know, here's this man that's lost his entire family and basically lost his reason to live. And I don't know. Like, yeah. Like, what do you do? Do you, do you find other reasons to live? Like, do you try and find something to, like some greater good to sacrifice yourself for? Do you just lay down in your right. like pre-dug grave and die? You know, I mean, there's, right. it's, it's a very bleak movie, but it's an incredibly, I think, like thought-provoking and interesting movie, and yeah, it's pretty visually stunning. Um, and yeah, like I think that it's especially like in the the day and time we live in, where there's definitely facets of our world that kind of feel like we're in a like almost like a post-civilization like timeline right now in a lot of ways. Like I think that it's, they're all definitely worth watching. Well, right. That was t- discussed uh, last night too, is the idea of like, you know, like, I mean, and I think we all knew this already and we, but at some point it's like the world is going to be talked about like a post COVID world. Right. You know, just like there was a post nine eleven world, like, you know, and that this is all 
U.S. centric, obviously, but it's like this is actually going to be bigger than something like that, where it's like this is going to be a worldwide thing. Like at some point, we're going to be living in a post-COVID world. Right. There's going to be a before and after, and it's you know, and it's like when and it's going to be one of those things. It's like it's going to be. It won't be talked about much. It might be a paragraph in the history books when it comes down to it, but it's like you know, living through it, it's going to affect us for the rest of our lives. You know, I mean, can you imagine the first time that, like, you know, we have a we have a, a pretty tight knit group of friends, like the first time that we're all able to gather somewhere, sure, and like actually interact with each other and whatever, like, I don't know, shake somebody's life. hand, possibly, right. right? Yeah, right. Like, give someone a hug. Like, I haven't hugged my right. mom in six months. You know, that's right. Crazy. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so I don't know. I mean, I think that. I, I think you look at something like 9-11 and in our lifetimes like that, that and then maybe like the Challenger explosion, um, maybe like the fall of the Berlin Wall for us or like those opening like missile salvos you saw on TV during like Desert Storm. Like there's definitely moments in our lives that are memorable and I think that are shared like conscious events for all of us. But they're moments, you know what I mean? Like, they're things that had happened, and then it ended. Like, and you might have thought right. about it for a while, but, like, in the grand scheme of things, like, it's an event that has, like, a finite beginning and end, and, like, what's the finite beginning and end of this? Right. Like, you can't even really determine, like, I guess within, like, a few days of what the start of it is, but there's going to be people that are going to be, like, gun-shy to go out in public, you know, maybe for years after this is over. Absolutely. I mean, in just my personal circumstance, it's like I have no idea, even with the vaccine, like exactly how it's going to play out within my household. You know, I mean, um, you know, Shit, I get tested like I, I, right. As long as I can't pass, I mean, it'll be fine with a vaccine as long as I can't pass it on to somebody. But I don't know if the vaccine will do that or not. You know, I mean, and if that's the case, that it there's still the possibility I could pass it on. Um, then yeah, I'm still stuck in the same boat. So. so watching movies like this is like just interesting to see from a completely different like initial perspective, like how filmmakers and artists like kind of viewed and obviously Waterworld and Hell Comes to Frog Down and Delicatessen aren't necessarily like well reasoned looks at like the post apocalypse. But it still is like interesting to see those things and Sure, those are all fun rides about like what things could be, and like honestly, Waterworld's probably like the most realistic out of yeah. those three. Like, I mean, like, um, I mean, still maybe a little bit absurd, but it's like probably the most realistic in the sense that it's like you know we another like two hundred years. It's like yeah, that's probably where we're going to be close to being at if we don't, you know, or twenty five if you're Al Gore. <laughs> Right, you know, two hundred. If you know, we just do do things like you know, drop out of accords and those kind of things. Yeah, you know what it's gonna be? It's gonna be fucking like Leonardo DiCaprio, sea pirate captain on his fucking super yacht, like sailing around the world, like rescuing tribes of people. He's gonna have like a flotilla behind him, like fucking um. It's gonna be Sean. Oh, it's like Sean Penn during Katrina, right? Like it's like. Sean Penn's going to be on a fucking raft made of, like, bug light boxes. Like, I don't know. Punching people in the face. Oh my god, it's going to be like, it's going to be that 
fucking Emmerich movie. It's going to be 2012. Oh. And Sean Penn's going to be the captain. <sighs> anyway. Uh, yeah, this was a really interesting list. Um, I enjoyed every movie to one degree or another and watching it. Um, some really interesting looks at things that I wouldn't have thought about ever again in my entire life. And then three movies that I hadn't seen yet that um, I really enjoyed. So I yeah, appreciate I'm, I'm glad that. I didn't go with the initial uh, idea to just do like the B-movie stuff. Yeah. Because you would have had to watch Dune Warriors. That's that um, Carradine movie. That man was sad. <laughs> right. <laughs> Pardon me, that movie's awful. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Too. I think that actually our next like several lists have some pretty good movies and stuff that I'm interested in talking about. Yeah, yeah, I'm done the acid westerns. I think we have a lot of things to talk about there. Um, I'm interested in next week too with um, Neon Demon and Starry yeah. Eyes because um, <laughs> we we purposely not talked about those off air um Great. so that'll be like a really fresh discussion about those um i do have to think about the formatting of that a little bit because i haven't much yet but um and I then i don't um, have to think about anything but um and then um yeah and the thrillers will be interesting because we don't do modern stuff a lot you know like thing you know so yeah um no, I'm I'm really excited for i'm excited for the rest of the year because then halloween comes about and um, you know, October comes about and we do all horror, which is going to be interesting. And then, um, and then, um, and then the rest of the year, I'm I'm interested in as well because that'll be fun to see what you develop out of it and how much I yeah. hate what you develop out of it. I'm excited but, um, for that. <laughs> but that's always what I look forward to the most. <laughs> Your animosity. I, I think that sometimes you actually like try to like prod a little bit with some of your picks. Um occasionally. Yeah, occasionally. But but no, I'm really excited about the rest of the year. So um any final thoughts for the night? No. Again, it was just it was uh yeah. it was a good exercise, I think, to watch these movies and yeah. I watched probably like fifteen movies in addition to this that fit this genre this like topic, so that was good for me in that respect. Yep. Or not good for me, I don't know. But it was fun. I enjoyed it. Okay, so we'll be back next week with a comparison of Starry Eyes and Neon Demon. And um, and then in two weeks, we'll be back with the top five Acid Westerns. Um, other than that, thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe and share as much as possible. Other than that, um, have a great week. Yep, have a good night.